Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Selma, The Bridge to the Ballot is a documentary film. It's the true story of the forgotten heroes in the fight for voting rights, the courageous students and teachers of Selma, Alabama, who stood up against injustice despite facing intimidation, arrests, and violence. The producers of the film uh, point out the sacrifices of those who fought so hard for equality should never be forgotten and cite the fact that in the 2012 presidential election, more than 90 million eligible voters did not go to the polls. And in the 18 to 24 age group, only 6 out of 10 voted. In 2014, voter drop uh, turnout dropped to a 72-year low. And we're going to be talking with the producer and director, Bill Brummel, today. And by the way, this film is showing at uh, Doc Utah. That's uh, the uh, International Documentary Film Festival going on right now in uh, St. George. Uh, Bill Bremel is an award-winning uh, documentary film producer and director. He's a recipient of a Peabody Award, two International Documentary Association Awards, five national Emmy nominations. Many of his films have focused on civil rights and human rights. For example, Rwanda, Do Scars Ever Fade, Blood Diamonds, uh, Bullied, Viva La Causa, Inside Paul Pot's Secret Prison, Ku Klux Klan, A Secret History. And the list goes on. We welcome uh, producer and director Bill Bremel into the program today. Welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, so that's uh, quite a list of uh, of films. Congratulations on the awards, by the way. Uh, you, you focus focusing on civil rights and human rights. How did you get started in this uh, this field? Well, um, I've been. I started in television, and probably in the early '90s, I guess it was. And I was working in bad reality television, hmm. um, doing network specials, and it just wasn't very fulfilling. I uh, then switched over to documentaries and sold the first show um, that my company produced, and that was The Klan Show, History of the Ku Klux Klan, a two-hour special. We were about two or three days from finish, wrapping up production completely, and I was di- diagnosed with tonsil cancer, which you know certainly threw my life for a loop, threw the career for a loop. Um, I had surgery, I had radiation treatments for seven weeks, and the radiation treatments did the trick. Um, I'm here 18 years later, which is a great thing. Um, The radiation treatments also um, had some long-term damage. Uh, My voice might seem a little raspy, that's vocal cord issues from the radiation. Um, My salivary glands were zapped. So you'll always see me drinking water in case, in, if you hear a pause, I'm probably taking a sip of water. Um, and my trachea was narrowed a little bit due to the radiation treatment, so it might sound like I'm out of breath. I assure everyone I'm not going to keel over. Okay, that's good. But <laughs> the um, the cancer diagnosis played a role in my career in sort of really switching my focus. I wanted to do films that meant something to me. I want to do films that, you know, would have some sort of legacy that my children down the line could look at and say, oh, my dad did this. And I didn't feel they'd be doing that if, I, you know, it was some silly reality show. So, And I've always had an interest in, in racial relations, um, international justice issues. So that's kind of how it got started. So this film, uh, what's the intended audience? I guess everyone, but uh, you uh, sent over uh, a... Uh reading guide uh, directed at, uh, at students, and I think one of the points you're, you're making here is that uh, high school students, college students were uh, at the forefront of this movement. 
Absolutely. Um, and we can get into that. I'll, I'll say first that I made the film for the Southern Poverty Law Center and their Teaching Tolerance Project, and it is intended for uh, students, mainly high school students, but university students as well, and even some middle, middle school students. One thing, when I was producing it, I didn't want to dumb it down at all. I did want it to be um, intriguing and fascinating for all. Um, but what the Southern Poverty Law Center does through this Teaching Tolerance Project, Teaching Tolerance is a, uh, they create curriculum for, for high schools and, and middle schools, tolerance-based curriculum. And every few years they do a film as part of that. This is the third one I have done for the Southern Poverty Law Center. The Law Center distributes these DVDs free of charge to any school or community organization that asks for it. They started distribution of this one in April of this year, and so far they've sent out about 40,000 copies to schools. Hmm. Um, and it comes with a teacher's guide, and it's, it's a very nice little kit. Um, but it is, I mean, what we want to do is get to students, and, and my my goal, and I think the Law Center's goal, is, um, you know, we want to create a new generation of activists, and at the very least, I would love to create a new generation of young people who vote. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is a really inspiring people, a, a really inspiring story um, that students can really relate to. Yeah, those are pretty stark statistics that you have, uh, the, the, you know, in the, in the publicity materials. And that's an interesting way to link this up. There, there was there was blood spilled for for voting rights, and yet a lot of six out of ten young people, eighteen to twenty four, at least in twenty twelve, didn't vote. Yeah, um, it's um, it's a big problem in this country. You know, I think back to when I was eighteen years old and was able to vote for the first time, and I can't tell you how excited I was to vote. And that was back in 1974. I guess I'm revealing my age. I'm, <laughs> I might as well reveal my politics. I voted for Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and it wasn't so much the fact that even that Mr. Carter won. It was the fact that I was taking part in this, this incredible act of citizenship. And voting is the cornerstone of our democracy. And to be able to participate in that is a privilege. And um, I hope that that's what students take away from this. But it was, I mean, blood was spilt to secure this right for um, for African-American students in Selma. Do you, do you think uh, the kids that are targeted, to high school kids, uh, do you think they know this history? I, I know that I, I didn't know some of this history. I learned a few things watching the film. I mean, I knew some of the broad strokes. You know, Bloody, right. Bloody Sunday, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and and uh, and a few things. We still have uh, Congressman Lewis with us. You know, who was, his head was yep. split open on that day. Knew a few of these things, um, but I wonder if kids today know the history. I, for the most part, I would say they don't. Um, I would say most people, including myself, before the Southern Poverty Law Center called me and asked if I wanted to do this for them, um, I was not aware of the role that students and teachers played in the voting rights campaign in Selma. Um, I was certainly aware, I, I consider myself pretty well versed in civil rights history, um, and I certainly knew all, all the, the broad strokes as well about the voting rights campaign. But I was not aware of this, um, this role that the students played. And really, 
keeping the voting rights campaign alive in the few years before Dr. King arrives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point in the film. Uh, we've we've pulled a few clips from from the film. Let's hear the first one here. This is a, the introduction, and this this talks about the. Uh, I think this is one of those broad strokes. At least the older people would know uh, the the bombing of the of the church. Four young uh, right. girls died. Right. Let's hear this. Sunday, September 15th, 1963. A bomb explodes in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Four little girls are killed. We couldn't believe they would kill children getting ready for Sunday school. I guess it shouldn't have been a shock. The bomb was planted by the Ku Klux Klan. Earlier that year, young protesters marching from the church had attracted the attention of the nation by braving fire hoses, police dogs, and jail to break the stranglehold of segregation in the city. Now, four are dead. The Ku Klux Klan could do anything they want to you. And to know that could happen to you, I was kind of scared. And I think I was kind of angry too. So there, that kind of sets the the scene. Uh, there's a there's a scene in the film. Uh, Linda Blackman is a, sort yeah. of a you know a heroine of the film. You you, you quote her several times. Uh, she talks about going into a store with her father, tall, proud black man, and and hearing him called nigger and boy, and that, right. how, how that hurt her. Um, and a, a lot of young people coming up. Um, what, what, first of all, before we get into that, I wonder if you could set scene. What what was Selma, Alabama like at this time? Um, I'd been to Selma before. Um, I, like I said, I've done work with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they're they're based in Montgomery, Alabama. So I'd been to the Selma, Montgomery area several times. So um, Selma today, unfortunately, is as kind of a depressed city. Um, I'm hoping it's making a comeback. But the history is there. I tell you, you know, just standing on that bridge, it feels like hollowed ground. And um, I was back in back there in March, also for the uh, this year, for the 50th anniversary celebration. And there was just a reverence about the place at that time. And it was exciting because there were so many people there. Um, there was a con- congressional delegation of about 90 people there. We actually held the premiere of the film in Montgomery over the over that weekend celebrating the 50th um, at the Montgomery Performing Arts Center. We had about 1,800 people there with some luminaries such as Nancy Pelosi, um, Julian Bond, who we can talk about more. Um, so sadly, we lost him last month. Um, but that weekend was totally inspirational. Mm. Now, uh, I think it's uh, well, some of the young people you quote in the film as they start to to protest and the, the you know the drugstore uh, counter sit in and and those types of things. Uh, a line stood out. One of the young people said, um, "We we wondered why our parents hadn't yet done this. We 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 thought that they were cowards until the violence started. This is something their parents knew." 
It was probably going to happen. Right. Well, you know, there were many reasons why um, their parents could not vote. Um, Back back in those days, I think 50% of the population of Selma was African-American, and only 1% were registered to vote. And, but that's not because they didn't want to register to vote. Most of them did. Um, the system had set up all these obstacles to voting, literary tests. The courthouse where you register was only open two days a month. Um, there was fear and intimidation. Um, homesteaders feared losing their land if they registered. People feared losing their jobs. They feared violence. And, uh, you know, we point out in the movie that one of the things that would do they would do to intimidate uh, people who wanted to register is if if an African American went in and was actually able to register, newspapers published their names for two weeks so that the Klan, um, uh, their their employers, they'd all know they'd all know that these people were trying to vote, um, and that put them at great risk. And there were still lynchings, I'm sure, and, you know, you could actually die. Lots of violence. You know, the Klan, um, at that point, um, they were very strong in the South mm-hmm. in 1965. Mm-hmm. And so there was always the threat of violence hanging over their head. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with Bill Brummel, award-winning filmmaker. His uh, film, a new film, uh, it's called Selma, Bridge to the Ballot, True Story of Forgotten Heroes in the Fight for Voting Rights. Uh, students and teachers of Selma, Alabama, stood up against injustice and fought for voting rights. We're going to continue to tell this story, uh, and you're welcome to join the conversation here. We'll bring it forward to today. I want to talk about media in today's world as well following the break. Uh, Bill Bramble, you have um, some parts of this story were not filmed. Of course, the media came a little bit later. So you solved that problem by having an illustrator do do some illustrations. Uh, I want to make a parallel of that with our ubiquitous um, you know, cell phone cameras today. Uh, we'll bring it forward to today and, and uh, attacks, as some people see it, on voting rights today. And the simple fact that a lot of us just don't vote, despite the fact that uh, voting rights were, were, were paid for by blood. Uh, more following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about a new documentary film. Uh, it's uh, commissioned by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The filmmaker is Bill Brummel. He's our guest uh, for the hour today. It's called Selma, The Bridge to the Ballot. True story of the forgotten heroes in the vi- vo- uh, fight for voting rights. 
uh, and they uh, many of these happen to be students, high school students, uh, college students, and teachers, and of course the broader community there in Salva, other areas of uh, of the South. Um, and uh, this is showing at uh, the uh, Doc Utah. It's the International Documentary Film Festival. It's in St. George. And uh, these showings, uh, I think one of them happens today. Today uh, at 540. Today at 540, and that's on the Dixie State uh, College campus, I believe. Yes, at Eccles Fine Arts Center. All right. And also Saturday at 1110 in the morning. All right. So you have a chance, if you're going to be in southern Utah or are in southern Utah right now, to see this film. Highly recommend it. Um, Come on out, and I'll repeat everything you're hearing right now. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's right. Only uh, you'll have the visuals. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, a good, it's a good review, and like I said, I, I learned some things here, and, and, uh, and I really hope young people uh, see this, whether in the classroom or go to the, the film festival, uh, to see this history, which is uh, very important. Uh, I want to begin this segment with another uh, clip from the film, and we'll, we'll skip to the, the, the last one we have here, number four. This is the mayor of Selma. Uh, he's talking about mass arrests, so we're skipping ahead in the story, but uh, at this point in the story, uh, the, the point of the protesters is to fill the jails, and uh, they're doing this. It's mass protests for voting rights, and uh, this, this will give you a flavor of, of uh, you know, racist white South. This is the mayor of Selma. Protests happen almost daily. 450 students and 264 adults are arrested for parading without a permit. One of them is Dr. King. Selma's mayor points a finger at the protesters. Our city and our county has been subjected to the greatest pressures I think any community in the country has had to withstand. We've had in our area here outside agitation groups of all levels. We've had Martin Luther King, uh, King, pardon me, sir, Martin Luther King. They have continually harassed and agitated us for approximately three or four weeks. By February 5th, more than 2,000 people, including many students, have been jailed. You know, at Brown Chapel Church, they'd have a bus over there waiting. We knew that we were going to be automatically arrested, but we knew that the key was to keep filling up the jail. The New York Times publishes a letter Dr. King writes from his jail cell. This is Selma, Alabama, he says. There are more Negroes in jail with me than there are on the voting rolls. We're fighting for our freedom. We shall not be So the, uh, the tactic was successful. As uh, Dr. King writes, there are more Negroes with me in jail than there are on the voting rolls. And, uh, Absolutely. And the media started coming and uh, pictures started going out. Uh, especially to our ears now, the, the mayor, he's a young mayor, um, and he's, he's, he, he, yeah. and you know, you know, from the look in his eyes, that wasn't a mistake, you know, when he calls Dr. Martin Luther King uh, coon. Right. Uh, but it's, it's well, very. Even if it was, you know, it, that would show the prevalent racism of the time. Mm-hmm. That even if he was trying not to say it. Right. Because the cameras were there, it just slips out. Because that's what he's really thinking, mm-hmm. and of course it's it, it, it's offensive. It's it's oh, just it's just offensive. But that that's what life was at that time. Yeah, that was a, that was a daily occurrence in the South, and that was what um, black people had to live with every single day. And the other thing that you get from that clip, I think, is that you know the the mayor, the sheriff, Clark, uh, other officials. 
they they treat them they they paint themselves as the victims. We're we're being victimized. Our way of life is being you know these, these outside agitators. Right, and that was kind of true anywhere. Dr. King showed up. Um, Dr. King was an outside agitator, and all the people he brought with him were outside agitators. When the truth is that the movement in Selma was really a um, grassroots movement of citizens in the city. Uh, which, which is very true. Uh, talk to me about the, the fact that these were a lot of these were students. Uh, one, one factor here I learned from your film is uh, the, the students had a bit of a freedom to do this. As they said, unlike our parents, we won't lose our jobs over this because we don't have a job. So we can, right. we can go out and they, protest. They, they felt they could take things on that their parents couldn't. Um, and most of the students who we profile in the film came from the all-black high school um, in town. And I don't want to say they had carte blanche permission from the high school to ditch and, and go protest, but some of their teachers um, allowed them to leave. Or I should say look the other way hmm. um, when they were absent from school. And they knew what was going on. They knew that they were going out to the courthouse or they were going out canvassing, trying to get um, adults to come down and register or trying to get adults to teach adults, you know, what was going to happen when they tried to register, how to fill out the forms. Uh, So I want to talk a bit about uh, media. Uh, You, uh, in your film, you use a very interesting technique. You have an illustrator for example, the scene at the lunch counter. These uh, students go into, uh, you know, whites-only uh, drugstore, sit at the uh, the counter, and uh, police come in with a electric cattle prod and, and, of course, beat on their head with the with the baton. Uh, that sort of thing would be filmed today, uh, you know, with with cell phones. Well, you know, one thing, Tom, is that uh, when I first started making the film. Um, I knew there were going to be scenes that were going to be hard to visualize. And I did not want to do reenactments in this movie. Um, I, you know, I wanted to shoot some original footage, but I didn't want to do reenactments. Um, when we were doing, re- when we first started, we were doing research. And one of the first things we do is collect all the books on the subject that we can find. One of the books we brought, got in was a book called March by Congressman John Lewis. And it is a graphic novel illustrated by a gentleman named Nate Powell from Indiana. Um, and I looked at it quickly and I said, oh, you know, this won't help us very much. And then as we, as time moved on and I had written an outline and I'm working on a script and I'm writing stuff and I'm saying, how on earth are we going to visualize this? Um, the thought popped in my mind about that book. And so we called Nate Powell, who illustrated the book, um, and asked if he'd be interested in doing this and he jumped on it. And he did a fantastic job. And what Nate would do would do a drawing um, with different panels on the same drawing. And then we gave it to a computer graphic artist who animated um, the illustration. So it's it's unique, and I think it looks fabulous. And um, I think it's another way that young people might relate to the film. And that was one of the things I really tried to do in the film is try with production techniques to produce it in such a way that young people would be interested, that it would keep their attention. Hmm. And I hope, I think we succeeded with that. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, it, it is very uh, dynamic. Um, so at a certain point, continuing the theme with the, with the media, 
uh, this is the whole point of the protest, nonviolent protest. You, you know, you want scenes to be seen. You want, you have to be willing to, to take violence and to have, you know, some of your members of your protest, uh, you know, be hurt, perhaps even killed. And all that did happen. One, at one point, your film, uh, one, I think this is when the teachers are marching on the courthouse right. uh, to, to try to vote. Sheriff Clark, uh, you know, pushes them back. Um, one of them says, Sheriff Clark made a blunder. This will be seen around the world. Yeah, that was a strategy of the movement, um, not just the students. That was a strategy of the movement, is find, um, when they're looking for places to protest, ideally they would like to find a place where they had high expectations that a sheriff or someone in charge would react violently to their peaceful protest, would not be able to take it. And um, in Selma, they had uh, the perfect person in Sheriff Jim Clark, because he was, had a short temper, and, and he, uh, he, he helped them out a lot by that. Hmm. A certain point, uh, I think we know this from history, it was interesting to see this again, uh, Sheriff Clark, uh, uh, he, he has, I guess, nervous exhaustion, he, he ends up in the hospital, <laughs> and, and the protesters pray for him. Yes, they did. They, they knew that without him, they probably weren't going to get the attention that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that they, they needed a they needed a villain, I guess, in this story. Yes, which you, you they know, ha- absolutely needed a villain. Which, he, you know, he... He uh, accommodated them, for sure. He was sort of the stereotype. He did, and you know, it's a, it's an incredible strategy, and it, it works so often. But you have to remember that these students and all the folks in the civil rights movement who who undertook this, undertook it at great risk to themselves. It's one thing, you know, we want to get the national news to cover this, but it's going to take somebody getting beat to do that. It might take somebody getting killed they were all aware of that, and yet they did it anyway. And these are, in the film, we're talking about, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids. It's yeah. just, it's, it, to me, it's a remarkable feat of bravery and heroism. And it, it is amazing. It is amazing. Very, very inspiring. And there were people who died. There was a, there was a protester who was hit on the head and uh, taken to the hospital. White nurses refused to treat him. <laughs> yeah, that's Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was killed in nearby Marion, Alabama, at a protest. Uh, well, I, I mean that. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're talking about. Did you say a white protester? Uh, no, the, there's a black protester first. Yeah. yeah, he was shot actually. Oh, he was shot. That's right. He was shot. Yes. Yeah, he was shot by state troopers. Yes. Um, when they were trying to break up a uh, protest. And then later on, the, Marion. later on, white people came, uh, and you'd. I think it's Linda Blackman again. Or, or one of the young people expressing amazement that, that white folks would come and help them? Well, for the most part, the folks who grew up in Selma weren't aware of too many um, white folks who would just come in and sort of felt the same way they did. Certainly there were white folks in the South who were accommodating to, to black people and treated them, <clears throat> tried to treat them nicely, but it was all within the system of racism that was set up in the South. So this is a different experience when all these folks came in to help. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Bill Brummel. He's an award-winning filmmaker. His latest film for the Southern Poverty Law Center is uh, Selma, the Bridge to the Ballot. It's the true story of the forgotten heroes in the fight for voting rights, courageous students and teachers of Selma, Alabama. 
and it's a showing at Doc Utah. It's the International Documentary Film Festival in St. George, and the screenings are today at 5.40, Bill? Yes, today at 5.40 and Saturday at 11.10. Okay, and that's on the campus of uh, Dixie State uh, uh, University, and uh, that's in the Eccles Center there. Eccles Fine Arts Center, and... um, Apart from my film, let me just put a plug in for the festival. Um, I've gone to a lot of festivals, and this is a, it's a wonderful festival. Um, lots of really interesting films, and um, everybody, we're, all the filmmakers are being treated so well. Excellent. It's a very ambitious uh, festival. I've got it's happening here in Utah. It uh, is. Let's uh, let's hear another clip uh, from the from the film. This is uh, talking about the the church passing of the uh, I think the Civil Rights Bill of '64. Uh, but still unfinished business. Let's hear this. Weekly mass meetings help energize the students. Everybody would be there. The church would always be packed. It hit us that we had a voice, you know? We had a voice. And the music was the thing that really got the people ripped up. At every mass meeting, they said, we need a choir. People were not looking for the quality of a voice, you know. We were singing ourselves out of fear. But intimidation and arrests eventually take their toll on the protesters. The signing of a new federal law on July 2nd, 1964, that prohibits segregation in public places, however, gives them hope. Everything that's segregated, we're gonna integrate. We're gonna go to lunch counters, we're gonna go to Carter's again, we're gonna go to libraries, we're gonna go to where only white kids could go in. We're gonna go and drink out of the white fountains. When Johnson signed the law, we went to the Wilbur Theater. We paid our money and went in. So that's a clip from the from the film uh, Selma. Um, the, uh, the subtitle is "Bridge to the Ballot." Uh, so they're they're flooding areas. It's 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 a lot of things that they're trying to do. The the main purpose is voting rights. The the bill is signed by President Johnson, and then he. Uh, and then uh, the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is pushing for voting rights. That, of course, is the key to all of this. And President Johnson says, well, the time isn't quite right for it. Correct. Um, and, it, you know, President Johnson was resistant. Um, but I think you have to look at him kind of as, um, on some level, he was an ally of King. Their relationship in the end was was really very productive. Dr. King knew that... Um, the, the the road to change um, was going to come through federal courts or the federal government changing laws. Um, so Dr. King was not uh, shy at all about breaking local laws or state laws um, that were unjust and racist. Um, but um, he never violated a federal court order. Um, and, you know, Johnson um, was slow to act, probably, on the Voting Rights Act, but he had other priorities. 
um, Dr. King pushed him, and I think everything in Selma pushed Johnson to act faster than he normally would have. And this is sort of, uh, as we know, sort of uh, this is a later example of Nixon going to China. Here's Johnson, a, a Southerner, and per- perhaps it took a Southerner to, to push some of this through. Uh-huh. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure he was considered you know, a traitor to his, to his region. Well, I know he was. Yep, <laughs> and he a, was. Lot of, a lot of invective against him, a, a Texan who's betraying as, as they sought uh, the, their way of life. Let's take another break. We'll be back with Bill Brummel. Um, his uh, new film uh, premiering at the uh, showing at the Doc Utah, which is the International Documentary Film Festival in St. George, is called Selma, The Bridge to the Ballot. I want to talk about Bloody Sunday. They attempted the marchers to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge and their march to, uh, to Montgomery. And uh, how, uh, what effect that had. And I want to bring it to today and, and some issues that we're facing uh, today with race relations. More following the break. If you're a pecan farmer, what's the best way to advertise your product? You know, when you have a jingle, uh, that can really give you extra memorability. I'm Adrian Hill. And who doesn't love a good pecan jingle? Next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring seasonal, local, and organic foods. Open for breakfast 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. and lunch 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Sunday brunch 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Menu information available at CafeIbis.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new film. It's called Selma, The Bridge to the Ballot. It's presented by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The filmmaker is Bill Brummel. He's our guest for the hour. This is showing at Doc Utah, the International Documentary Film Festival. And these films are showing in the Eccles Center on the uh, campus of Dixie State uh, College. Um, and uh, the showing to this afternoon is at 540 then there's uh, another showing, Bill Bravo. What? What's, uh, yes. What's the next showing? There's one today at five forty. Uh, yeah, Saturday at eleven uh, ten. Saturday at eleven ten. These are opportunities to see the the film. And these films are uh, going out to schools as well, and there's a whole reading guide. So if you're a teacher, uh, here's an opportunity for you to uh, teach some of this history. Very important. We're going to do one other thing, if I can say, Tom, um, um, that. We were really fortunate in this film to get some spectacular help from some very big folks. Um, Octavia Spencer narrates the film. She's an Academy Award-winning actress. She's actually from Montgomery, and she went to school with Morris D's daughter. Morris D's the co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, we got her the script through her agent, and she loved it. She came into the studio and just nailed it. I think her her read is wonderful, not overstated, but uh, very touching as well. And one of the things that was very important to me, again, with this idea of creating a film that uh, students could relate to was music. And music was such a big part of the civil rights movement and was such a big part of these students' lives. I mean, when they were out on the protest line, they were always singing. 
They were singing protest songs. They were song, singing gospel songs. So it was very important for us to try and get that flavor. And we were very, very fortunate um, to get to be able to license four cuts from a Mavis Staple record she did with Ry Cooter back in 2007 called We'll Never Turn Back. And on that record, she covered gospel tunes and old civil rights tunes. And um, you've heard her a couple of times in the clips we've played. Um, and she adds so much to the film. Also, we were able to license a song by The Roots um, from a older documentary called um, Soundtrack to a Revolution and Blind Boys of Alabama from that record, too. So music plays a really big role in this. The narration's fantastic. So, you know, I think we've got a film that um, is dynamic in many, many ways. Let's hear another clip, and I, I want to and then go on to, to set up the Bloody Sunday and the, the fact that that had. Uh, so this is uh, Dr. King coming to town. While students test the new law, adults converge on the courthouse. In five days, 90 try to register. Only six succeed. More than 70 protesters, students and adults, are arrested. We didn't stay in jail that long. We be out the next day, ready to march again. To stop the protests, a local judge issues an order that prohibits three or more people associated with civil rights groups from even meeting. Public protests grind to a halt. But members of the Dallas County Voters League, led by Frederick Reese, a science teacher at Hudson High, meet secretly to devise a plan. We felt the movement in Dallas County was going to stall. We decided that we're going to invite Dr. King to come to Selma. The church is packed. He came from the back of the church. Everybody stood up and started singing. Today marks the beginning of a determined, organized, mobilized campaign. And the leaders of the movement come up with a, with a plan. We're going to march to Montgomery, which is, uh, how, how far away is that from Selma? Montgomery is, um, oh, how many miles? It's about a 45, 50-minute drive. Okay, so it's, uh, it's an ambitious march. And, and of course, yeah, it took uh, four or five days. Fraught with symbolism. They're going to march, and, uh, uh, you know, that's, this is the seat of the, of the state government. Uh, so tell me, tell me about Bloody Sunday. What happened uh, that Sunday on uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge? Well, Bloody Sunday, um, the protesters met at uh, Brown Chapel Church, which was kind of their central meeting point. And they marched to the bridge, and Governor uh, George Wallace had previously said that um, he would not allow the march to happen. Um, the protesters crested the bridge, came down on the other side of the bridge, and were met by a line of state troopers and um, what we call posse members, so Sheriff Clark's posse, who were deputized civilians who he gave guns and clubs to. Um, the state troopers said the march will not proceed, and you have a minute to turn around, and the protesters did not turn around. And then 
the troopers and the posse attacked. They uh, used tear gas. They used billy clubs. Um, they beat several several protesters very badly. John Lewis was struck in the head. There's an iconic photograph of Lewis being hit in the head and lying on the ground. Um, it was it it was a uh, you know it was a bloodbath on some level, and of course at this point the, the media was there in force. There's photographs, there's there's film, right. and this this had a huge effect. It really did. It, you know, it's one of those seminal moments that that I think raised the consciousness of the entire country about what was going on in Selma, and Selma was representative of so many other places in the South. And uh, President, oh, excuse me, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, So President Johnson, uh, when he announces he's going to send the voting rights bill to Congress, he cites uh, Lexington and Concord, he cites Appomattox, and he cites Selma. It's a remarkable speech. I I think it's one of the finest presidential speeches that we've ever had. Um, He cites Selma, he cites all that. He also uses the most revered term in the civil rights movement, we shall overcome. And to hear that coming from a white Southerner president um, was really uh, no less than remarkable. One of the young people quoted in the film says she burst into tears to hear that phrase from the president. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Dr. King was at a house in Selma watching. Um, and um, I've heard John Lewis tell a story that um, he was with Dr. King that when President Johnson said, and we shall overcome, that a tear welled up in uh, Dr. King's eyes as well. Mm -hmm. So the voting rights uh, bill did pass. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story. And and it's not the end of the story. I wonder if you could bring this forward to today. This does, I think, give context to people who perhaps uh, struggle understanding why uh, black people and others are suspicious of uh, some attempts to, as the conservatives say it, uh, curb um, you know voting abuses. Well, I think um, uh, some people are aware. Not everyone's aware that in 2013, the Supreme Court um, gutted a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, section five was ruled unconstitutional. That section determined which states must receive clearance from the Justice Department or a federal court before they made minor changes to voting procedures like a polling place or major ones like redrawing electoral districts. Um, Within months of that happening, several states in the South um, started implementing implementing voter ID laws, closing polling stations, stopping early voting. Um, And that has a direct effect of disenfranchising not only African Americans, but elderly folks in poverty. Um, so do you think that should be reinstated? Those the provisions? court decision left out, open the possibility for Congress to reauthorize this section. <laughs> but in the current uh, makeup of Congress, um, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some uh, voter ID laws that even with Section 5 thrown out, um, some uh, federal court just recently actually um, it held that voter ID laws in Texas were discriminatory. So, you know, it's being tested in the courts, but the best way to do this is, you know, for Congress to reauthorize uh, 
put the reauthorize the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. in full. And the only, and it's, you know, it all comes full circle. Really, the only way to do that is to put people in Congress who are willing to support the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, and it, it all comes back to voting. It all comes back to voting, yeah. So what what would you say then to the, the, the stark t- statistics that you have in your publicity materials here um, that I quoted at the top of the program? Uh, so from 2012, presidential election, which, by the way, presidential elections bring out more people usually than other elections. So more than 90 million eligible voters did not go to the polls. And in the 18 to 24 age group, only six out of 10 voted. So 40 percent voted in the 18 to 24 uh, age uh, group. How, how to, how to increase that? Well, yeah, that, that's a really sad figure. Um, Richard Cohen, the president of the Law Center, has said several times that he feels that even with these voter restrictions, the biggest obstacle to voting right now, especially for young people, is apathy. And what we have to do is find out how we can change that. And again, my hope is that students who see this film will be energized and sort of realize how important voting is and the sacrifices that were made to guarantee that right for them. What about the, you know, the, the current events? Un- unfortunate, tragic, uh, you know, uh, seems like every day you open the, you know, seems that way, you open the newspaper and another uh, black person's been, you know, hurt or, or, or killed by police. And uh, you have the, the Black Lives Matter movement, that's that's proceeding now. What what would you say the parallels uh, to to those times in in the 1960s? Well, I think the Black Lives Matter movement um, has a direct parallel to uh, you know what these students did in Selma. Um, you know, they stood up. They 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 got tired. They got frustrated, and they, they you know started marching. They started making their voices heard. And I think that's what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. And you know, the, the response uh, among many conservatives to Black Lives Matter is, well, all lives matter. And of course, all lives matter. But the Black Lives Matter is in re- movement is in response to the um, historical, and up to this day, um, oppression of black people and uh, uh, violence toward them by, by authority. Uh, meaning the police. So I think there's a direct correlation to uh, what was going on in Selma. What what should we take? What what do you take from the uh, the church shootings in uh, in Charleston? Is there you know obviously there there are still violent racists out there. Do you, um, do it, you know we're making progress. What what do you take from that? Well, um, it, first of all, it's a tragedy, and my heart goes out to all the family members of those victims. Um, but it really does show, you know, people like to say we live in a post-racial world. world. Um, I don't think we do. I think racism is prevalent in the country, and we've done, we've come so far in terms of changing laws. You know, institutionally, um, we've made discrimination um, illegal, and that's all well and good. But it takes a lot longer to change hearts. And I think that's, you know, what you're seeing. Uh, do you think it's, uh, do I, you know, there, there were, there are people, we've heard the tape of people who just did not agree with and felt affronted by, you know, lowering the Confederate flag from the state house in 
in South Carolina. I guess that would be in the same vein. Uh, hearts. Well, you know, hearts have to be I, I have to admit, I just don't get people who um, are so attached to the Confederate flag. You know, it's to me, it's not history, or if it is history, it's a history of hate. That flag was and still is used by various hate groups, Klan groups, neo-Nazi groups. Um, you know, there's some photos in, a, in our film of, you know, the white segregationists, and they're holding their Confederate flag. So really, in the early 60s, with the advent of the Civil Rights Movement, that flag became attached to the, the racist part of the South. And there's no way around that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, I, I just don't get um, the folks who feel differently. And uh, we can't follow up on this. We're out of time. But there there is a debate uh, over the, the very name of the college that you're at, you know, that you're showing the film out there, Dixie, Dixie State. And that's that's the debate yeah, that's going, about that yesterday. going going forward. So that's very interesting. The, you know, these these issues uh, and debates uh, happen, I think, in most places. Um, real quickly, Tom, I know we're running out of time. I do want to say that in addition to seeing it at the film festival, um, the film can be ordered by any school, any group that works as a community organization. It's available for community screenings. All you have to do is go to tolerance.org, and you can navigate to, to fill out a very short little form, basically your address, and you'll get a, a free copy of the film within a couple of weeks. All right, tolerance.org, place to go. Uh, Bill Brummel is the producer and director of Selma, The Bridge to the Ballot, which is showing at Doc, Utah, in southern Utah. Tell me quickly the two times that people can see that. Uh, today at 540 and Saturday at 1110 a.m. All right, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. So think about your daily travel routines. What would you do without well-maintained roads, air conditioning, or ways to entertain the kids? Find out more after this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Did you know that 86% of American commuters drive cars to work and spend an average 50 minutes each day on the road? Today we cover distances with relative ease on well-maintained roads, but this wasn't always the case. In the past, roads were often the worst part of car trips, particularly in rain or snow. Until the first motorized snowplows hit the market in the 1920s, work crews used horse-drawn plows and shoveled cities out by hand. Snow removal in rural areas proved especially daunting. In 1933, the Utah Road Commission had only 156 snowplows, while traveling road crews and local volunteers did the rest. Otto Kessler, who ranched out at Cove Fort, routinely patrolled his stretch of highway between Fillmore and Beaver, often opening the fort to stranded motorists. Hot weather was just as bad. In 1936, the Millard County Chronicle reported on the invention of air-conditioned railroad cars, stating that travelers no longer need fear the excessive heat of a cross-country train ride. Air conditioning was a luxury car owners would not enjoy until the 1960s and 70s. Until then, drivers managed the heat by hanging water bags off the front of their cars. Wind passing through the bags kept the water cool for drinking and helped overheated radiators. Similarly, box coolers attached to car windows worked by chilling air as it passed through a damp pad inside the box. What about passengers? 
When Miriam and Amal Whitesides traveled from Kaysville to California in 1927, their two-year-old daughter entertained herself by swinging on the car's rooftop slats. In the 1950s and 60s, parents were advised to pack plenty of books and games for their children on long trips. Other gadgets, like the travel-taught hammock, transformed the back seat into a playpen where children could roll around. Today, we buckle kids into safety seats, entertaining them with portable electronic devices. How might people 100 years from now make their road trips? Jetsons, here we come. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Rebecca Anderson. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Renowned author and blogger Lenore Skenazy, otherwise known as the world's worst mom, instigated an online debate after publishing an article explaining why she let her nine-year-old son ride the New York City subway alone. A battle between parenting styles in Sudan has not yet slowed down, and we want to hear from you. What's your narrative? What's your opinion? Share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network a collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create a more in-depth story and could direct conversation and on-air coverage regarding this debate. Join UPIN today and help us discover our most valuable source, you. For more information, visit upr.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.